Welcome to B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Draper. And now, here's your host, Stuart Black. Joining us today for our review of 2021 on B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, it's Richard Parsons and Cosmin Guides, co-founders of True and the brains behind this podcast series. We thought it would only be right to bring them back on the show to talk about what they've learned so far from our guests, the state of the industry, the latest research from the B2B Institute, IPA accreditation, Cannes Lions, and much, much more. So welcome back to the show, Richard and Cos. Thank you. Hey, Stu. How are you? Nice to have you back. Uh, we have had some amazing guests on the show this year. Um, perhaps you can tell us your favorite episode and what you've learned so far from the series. Yeah, you're right. We've had uh, an amazing list of, uh, of client-side uh, uh, interviewees on, on the podcast. And my favorite, I think, is uh, Mark Bogarts from Tata Consulting Services. Uh, he also brought a B2C flavor to B2B and uh, with his um, uh, sports marketing background, talked a lot about sponsorship uh, from, from his time at Heineken. And uh, I think that he just gave another flavor to B2B that we don't typically hear. Yeah, he was great. And Cos, uh, how about you? Who did you like listening to? I really enjoyed Catherine Lamb's episode. Um, she's head of global marketing strategy at HSBC. And it was so insightful to listen to how they're balancing short and long-term objectives and the just amazing measurement frameworks that she's put in place to measure the impact of brand building activity. Um, and really their focus on audience data as well was was really great, great to listen to. She's an incredibly smart lady and it was a real pleasure to have her on the show. So if you haven't uh, heard any of those um, podcasts, then we urge you to go back and dig them out. Um, let's start then with an overview of the current state of the industry. There's been plenty written and spoken about effectiveness in B2B. So where are we today? Maybe Cos, you can answer that one. Yeah, I mean, 2021 has been a great year for B2B effectiveness, largely driven again by the B2B Institute's continuing and incessant focus on creating great research studies. This year in particular, they launched the 2030 B2B Trends paper, as well as the How B2B Brands Grow, uh, which was in collaboration with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. This was then closely followed by the B2B Effectiveness Code from Walk and the Can Lions, which looks specifically at creative effectiveness and in B2B and the winning behaviours of some of the most successful B2B campaigns of the last decade. So all in all, I'd say there's never really been a more exciting time for B2B marketers when it comes to effectiveness. Um, there's the old analogy in London where you say you wait ages for one bus to come and then two come at once. Well, for B2B, we've been waiting for forever for some empirical evidence around B2B effectiveness. And now we've got like five awesome papers that have come in a very short space of time. Mm, just what we need as well. And on top of all that, the IPA has announced their inaugural list of agencies that have achieved IPA effectiveness accreditation. And True is on the list. Congratulations. 
Thank you. Yeah, uh, that was an incredibly proud moment for us at the agency to, to receive that level of recognition from the IPA, particularly as True are the only B2B specialist among the, the 19 agencies that made it onto that inaugural list. Um, I mean, even if you look at that list, there are only most of them are media agencies because I think it's a lot easier to join the dots in effectiveness when it, when it comes to media. Um, so there are only six creative agencies uh, on the list. And if you look at across that list, we're in really good company. The likes of BBH, uh, Wonderman Thompson, Leo Burnett, VCCP. So great agencies that we have incredible amounts of respect for. So we're, we're in great company and very, very proud to be on that list. Absolutely. And this year you've delivered some of maybe the best work the agency has ever produced, I'd say. So talk us through a project that you're really proud of. Maybe Richard, you can kick us off. As you say, we've delivered some great work. And I guess if, you know, to pick across across our clients, the, the, the work that stands out most for me is the work that we've recently delivered for Acora. Acora are a, um, a sort of a mid-tier or a tier two a managed service IT company that, that are based out of the UK. Uh, they tend to kind of bump into some of the global system integrators, the Capgeminis, those sort of guides, uh, the Accentures from time to time. Um, and they, they market into um, into the law firms and firms that have a lot of um, kind of people that have that, that build themselves on a billable hour. So they focus much more on the experience of, of, of IT rather than the service level agreement that you might normally expect from a from an outsourced provider like them. And we've run some, you know, we're running some really, really interesting work. Uh, it's difficult to describe uh, work. Um, sometimes it's just easier to go and have a look at it. If you go to uh, trueagency.com forward slash work uh, and then pick up the Acora work there. But you'll see that we've kind of got this army of people who are um are basically kind of killing off the sla and they're, they're championing the xla as we're calling it the um experience level agreement and it's just really really epic and there's a lot of uh budget that's gone into um into filming that work um so so that i think that's our standout work for me this year excellent and and cause for you what's been a memorable piece of work yeah, the Acora work definitely stands out as being really great. We've, we've also run a great campaign promoting Kaspersky's enterprise um, offering. I'd say that probably the Mondi campaign that we did for their brand, Pagrafica, um, has done uh, really well. It's won 16 awards this year. And again, some work that we're really proud of. That was a, a really great example of using brand partnerships. So we partnered with Adobe Stock um on a campaign to promote their luxury uh, paper um so yeah that's that's something that we're really proud of and it it picked up the chairs award at the the drum b2b awards which is um almost it's like the best in show alongside the grand prix so we we're really really proud of that excellent and so let's dig into the context of all that a little bit more so can you tell us what changed in the agency that enabled you to do uh, more of this kind of work so well um there's a few things that have taken place but we've been able to attract certain talent now when it comes to B2B work, you normally find people focused on delivering lead generation, thought leadership, email type campaigns down the bottom end of the funnel. As an agency, we focus much more towards the top end. And that's allowed us to really attract some, some decent talent. So we've recently been able to, well, within the year, so about a year ago, we um, we took on a couple of uh, uh, creative directors that previously came from uh, BBH, which is, um, I think it's the UK's most awarded agency, if not globally. I know that they're certainly there. They're known for their creative work. Um, so we've been able to take some people that typically have B2C background, but but with our strong uh, kind of strategy and planning function that we have in the agency, we're able to guide them, but but really still get a lot of that humanity that they bring to the work. 
but we've always had a media offering. Um, more increasingly, we've kind of been looking at the data side of media and bringing that into the creative process. So we've got a lot of insight now from a data side of things. I think that's kind of made a big difference to, to the quality of our work. And Coz, what would you say are the principles for a really effective creative? Gosh, um, I think the simplest thing that we look at is emotional response to to advertising and to our ideas. We launched something in the last year, which we called the Creative Effectiveness Scale. And it looks at um, ideas that come out of the creative department across this scale from least to, least to most commercially impactful. At the bottom end of the scale would be an idea that's damaging to a brand. So that would obviously have a negative commercial impact. Then you go up the scale and it's an idea which is like wallpaper, goes it's invisible, people don't notice it. Then an idea that gets noticed, an idea that grabs attention, then an idea that gets talked about. Um, and ultimately, if you invest in the right ways and use the right channel mix, then then you can take an idea that gets talked about and build a what we call a fame-driving campaign. So we have this scale and we look at, look at ideas through that lens, but trying to get uh, people to talk about or share um, an idea is ultimately the thing that we're always aiming for. Mm. Now, the B2B Institute has some fascinating new research out about how to measure creativity and how to make the case for brand and more budget with the CFO. Can you talk about some of those insights for us, uh, maybe Richard? What I'd encourage our listeners to do is to uh, Google the B2B Institute, which is a think tank uh, funded by LinkedIn, um, alongside their uh, five principles of growth. And it's a really, really interesting report that came out from Binnett and Field. Uh, in association with the IPA and uh, all the case studies that that, um, that they have access to, and and what it what it did is it identified that actually B two B is very much like B two C in certain aspects, and they identified these five principles of growth. So share of voice was one of the rules and the principles that they talk about, and these are these these are measurements that your CFO cares about. So very large business effects, things like increasing your your revenue, your profit, your reduction in price sensitivity, increasing your market share, all the things that that that, that your 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 um, CFO and CEO would care about, and so share of voice um, is something where they just say, hey, just just in, just increasing your share of voice in the marketplace will typically grow your, your, your market share. In fact, that if you've got your a 10% uplift in your share of voice over your market share, then actually a 10% uh, increase in that will increase for a product company about 0.7% will increase your market share by about 0.7% per annum. And for service brands, what 1.8%. So you can just, just outspend the competition and you will simply grow your, mar- your, your, your share of market. The other, the other um, principle they talk about is fame should be your number one objective. So this is about um, mental availability. And if you have that and you're, you're a brand that comes to mind, then you're much more likely to, to outperform your competitors. And they actually say, in, uh, according to them, that, that, uh, that, that fame as an objective outperforms lead generation by a factor of three. Our own research, which we call the 90% rule, says that if you're one of the three brands that comes front of mind, then you've got a 90% chance of winning the business. Uh, collectively, those three brands have a 90% chance of winning the business. So being around when the buyer wants to buy, by being in their head, by being kind of front of mind, is super important. The third principle they talk about is expanding the customer base. Uh, so this is just about reach and just talking to a wider audience. So reach outperforms acquisition by a factor of 1.6. And over the long term, they actually say that loyalty doesn't really give you any tangible growth. So quite interesting research coming from them. And then emotional strategies outperform rational 
by a factor of seven. So being front of mind, being one of those brands that comes to mind, you have to make a connection that's an emotional connection. And I think a lot of B2B marketers make the mistake of thinking that emotion in B2B is often about replacing products with people or something like that. What we mean and what they mean by emotional strategies is actually creating an emotional response from the audience. So I always give the example of uh, charity work, which actually um, is normally there to try and uh, create either empathy or a feeling of rage or disgust. So lots and lots of emotions that you can play with. And I think in B2B, uh, we are too narrow in which emotions we typically play with. And then the final principle they talk about um, is just the balance between brand building and sales activation and what your budget should look like. And, um, you know, when we um, when we started the agency 10 years ago, it wasn't unusual for a brand to have, you know, 90%, even 100% of their budget on sales activation, on lead generation programs, and nothing on brand. But actually, uh, they say it should be a much more balanced um, approach, something like 50% on your outbound kind of brand building work, and then 50% typically on uh, on that, that lead generation that's trawling people for an immediate with, with an immediate need. And for e-commerce and uh, very, very strategic purchases that are much more researched, much more considered, they actually say that the figure should be much more like 70% towards brand and 30% towards lead gen. So a massive shift. These, these, these principles are, are a kind of a big, big wholesale shift for, for a lot of B2B marketers. Yeah, and the, from the measurement standpoint, um, going back to aligning share of voice to market share, that's ultimately an input measure. That's you're controlling your spend. But... There's now a great output measure as well to measure the impact of brand activity much more in a much more immediate way, and that's uh, share of search. So there's been some great studies that are around share of search. So that's the share of searches for brands within your category and your brand's share of those category searches. And there's a direct correlation. It's been shown between your share of search and your market share. So we now have input measures with how much you're spending and aligning that to your market share growth, but also output measures in terms of your share of category searches and how that aligns to market share. So we've got this really great input and output model that we're starting to apply to our clients to really take our decision making in terms of investment and also measuring the impact of our investment um, and take it to being much more deterministic in our approach around decision making than it has been in the past. Mm. And and do you think brand marketers are taking notice of these principles and maybe changing their approach to their marketing as a result? I think so. Um, I don't. I think everyone is starting to sit up and take notice of this research because it's very very hard to ignore. So we now have empirical evidence to take to the senior stakeholders that hold the purse strings um, and argue the case for investment because now it's all about what makes most sense for the growth of the business Um, and it's definitely investing in brand more than thinking about short-term sales activation. Mm, Interesting and why do brand marketers in B2B businesses tend to struggle to get more budget from the CFO relative to their performance marketing colleagues would you say? Um, What are brand marketers doing wrong? They're focusing on the uh, bottom end of the funnel. And I think it kind of makes sense that, that that intuitively that feels right to focus on, you know, you, you need on day one, a business starts and it needs to create sales. So you say, let's go and trawl the market for people with an immediate need of, of uh, for, our, for our solutions. But actually, um, the Ironberg Bass Institute put the figure at only 5% of the market is in the market at any one time and actively looking for a solution. So when you realize that your outbound marketing is then talking 
to you're trying to trawl within that five percent but then there's 95 percent of people that are not necessarily uh, aware of your brand or interested in, in in your solutions at that time you have to talk to a different brain system you have to talk to a different part of the brain and those rational campaigns that trawl the market looking for people with an immediate need they tend to be just about relevancy and therefore you can talk quite rationally uh, rationally about your products but when it comes to the 95% of people who aren't actively looking, who will ignore your ad if it's, if it's not relevant for them, then actually you need to find another way of communicating with them. You need to talk to their to their emotional brain and you need to be really making a connection that builds memorability uh, so that when they are in the market, your brand comes to mind and you end up being one of those three brands that I mentioned earlier. And if you do that, then in 90% of the time, you've got a chance of winning that business. Um as opposed to just trawling the market for people with a short-term need, if you just keep focusing on that, you might get little sales peaks, but the memorability of your campaigns actually doesn't last and you ultimately don't become one of those three brands. So to increase your profits in B2B marketing, you need quality creative and quality media. Is that about right, Richard? Yeah, of course. Uh, and I think it's, it's probably self-evident. Um, but what I would say is that there's been a revolution in the um, in in media, and I think it's probably driven a lot by COVID. Although we were seeing pre-COVID, we were seeing already that start of the media explosion because of programmatic and the different channels that we can now play in. So historically, B two B has been a kind of a one channel one channel focus, you know, uh, entity where where it was always about email out to um, out to the audience to driving kind of thought leadership. It's a very va- rational communication, and it's hard to be creative, you know, in an email. Um, but I think with the explosion and programmatic, we're starting to see, you know, much more around display, video. Uh, we're seeing um, audio being bought um, bought via programmatic, even, you know, out of home, TV, etc. You know, so this explosion has really given um, creatives a bigger canvas. And in that canvas, they're able to tell a, a better story. So I think really it's been driven by media, but it's really opened up the opportunities for B2B marketers to be more creative again. And I think it's that combination of those two things coming together that really is starting to to um, you know I- improve the effectiveness. The recent launch of the B two B effectiveness code also talks about creative commitment. So, as well as the winning behaviours of some of the best campaigns, which ultimately looks at the creative element, it also uh, adds in a, something called creative commitment score. Now, that's a composite measure of a campaign's media budget, so the investment in media, the duration that the campaign runs for, the longer the campaign runs, the more it builds consistent memory structures, which means that the fluency of a brand becomes a lot easier, the salience becomes uh, better, Um, but also the channel mix. And it's been shown that uh, campaigns that run across a broad mix of channels and don't just focus on one or two um, are proven to be much more effective. So absolutely, the the create the combination of a great media plan uh, alongside really great standout creative is going to be key to, to driving growth for any brand. Let's turn now then to Can. Exciting news this year. A brand new creative B2B Lion was launched to recognise creative excellence in the sector. You must be really excited about that. We are so excited. It's uh, the most thrilling thing that's that's happened in B2B, uh, for, well, I don't know how, for how long, maybe forever. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that keeps B2C kind of alive, I think, is the desire for better work and everybody pushes towards better work. In B2B, it's actually been more hit and miss. If you look at the traditional B2B award, uh, you know, the award companies, uh, the ceremonies, et cetera, they... Um, nearly always have 100% of uh, the judges from the client side. 
Now, whereas the can lions tend to have a mix, they might have, you know, client side, agency side, analyst, it's a whole mix of people, but you get a much broader definition of what creativity and what effectiveness looks like. And I sometimes think that, that the B2B, you know, t- traditional awards, they are a little bit too focused on short-term metrics. I mean, Cos was talking about long-term metrics just then. I think they focus too much on short-term metrics. And it means that, you know, you end up with, you know, Grand Prix winners that have proven to have an ROI in the short term of XYZ, you know, a big number. But actually, if you look at the long-term impact or the real contribution to the business, it didn't really increase profits. It didn't really increase market share. There was no, there was no lasting effect of, of, uh, of that work. Um, and no one could point to it and say it was good work. It wasn't, you know, it, we would we would describe it as wallpaper, uh, the sort of work that you just walk past and you know it recognise it's there. Canlines has a real promise of kind of upping the ante and making everybody um, focus on what good looks like. So yeah, we're absolutely thrilled and, and super excited about it. And then the question is, why has it taken Can so long to create this category? It feels long overdue. I don't know, Can. It's a question for them. Why has it taken so long? Um, I do think that actually it's part, in part, that we're in this kind of golden era, this golden age of B2B, uh, this explosion in media that I've talked about, the canvas kind of becoming a more interesting canvas for us, this effectiveness, um, all this research that's coming out regarding effectiveness, this push towards brand and not just bottom it, bottom of the funnel kind of email to thought leadership. It's hard to have an award ceremony when everything is around an email to a white paper to get very excited about it. I think now, um, you know, it's a golden age and I think can have started to recognize and recognize that. I also think that actually COVID has had an impact on B2B as well. Whereas a lot of agencies that were B2C focused or clients that were B2C focused, high street uh, clients, for example, you know, they suffered, they've suffered massively under, under the, uh, you know, in this COVID era. B2B has kind of maintained most of its investment and most of its billing. So it's 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 an area that has continued um, during this time. And I think, therefore, that's kind of focused in people's minds as well. What does this mean for B2B brands and creative agencies in general? I'll, I'll ask you that, Cos. I think everyone now has to really look at themselves and really elevate the work that they're doing. We've got something that we can inspire to. Um, it's something to aim for that we've never had there in the past i mean obviously it's been there but um you could always win a can lion for b2b work but there was never a b2b specific category to aim for so now i think everyone can focus their minds really look at what great looks like supported by all this empirical evidence that we have to back up the reason for doing this and it's not just about winning awards and just really elevate the creative output that's coming out of the agencies and the expectations that um, advertisers are asking from their agencies as well. Uh, There's been a huge amount of innovation in media over the last two years driven by the pandemic. Uh, What has been the most exciting developments for B2B marketers for you? I alluded to it earlier, actually, that there's been um, an explosion in in the media side in terms of uh, TV and out of home. And because of programmatic and the way that we are, you know, typically we're buying those, it means that those platforms and those channels are now uh, available to B2B marketers. So historically, of course, B2B marketers weren't able to, to, to run TV, but now with addressable TV, uh, we can now focus on, on, um, on those um, data-driven audiences and even digital out-of-home. So if you're looking at something like key account marketing, you can now target the, the billboards around that head office, uh, but buying it in a very kind of 
um, efficient way um, and where the costs are reduced as well by buying it digitally. So you end up with this digital out of home. So I think that that's, there's been lots and lots of innovation in audio, et cetera. And that's actually really, really um, exciting. For example, I think that there's a, there's a lasting effect. And COVID's had a massive impact on, on this. So this year, 30% of all ad minutes will be delivered via um, addressable TV formats, you know, compared with linear TV. So that, that's um, a significant growth in, in, um, in addressable TV. And Richard, could you break down exactly what you mean by addressable TV? Yeah, it's primarily uh, delivering via set-top box providers such as um, Sky, Now TV, or even um, Video On Demand, so uh, ITV Hub, uh, all four. Um, we're able to buy, you know, obviously they're, they're UK platforms, but we're able to buy across Europe, in, in the States. It's relatively new. I mean, it, uh, uh, Sky AdSmart was only launched six years ago, I think it was, something like that. Um, and it's, you know, it take, takes a while. But I think that what's really interesting is it now means for B2B marketers, all these platforms that historically weren't available to us, they're now available to us. So we opens up the canvas, but it also gives us this kind of pinpoint accuracy, but you can do it at scale now. And um, it just means that it's a, it's a very exciting time across all these different new channels. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's also been a lot of talk about ABM recently. Um, how do you think the conversation has changed, uh, especially across 2021? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I think ABM, it really started, um, I talked earlier about the bottom end of the funnel. And I would say that ABM's origins start with the sales function and how the sales function was going to engage with the marketing function on those key accounts. And so in the first instances, you know, ABM was all about the one-to-one marketing. So really, really understanding an audience at the organizational level and then understanding at a functional level and then the individual level and trying to find campaigns or approaches to that individual. Then it started to morph into one to a few. So it started to look more at kind of segments um, but I think that the big the big change is how it shifted further up the funnel, and then we now can start to think of it as as a, a, a strategy for advertising, so account based advertising. So here we're really going back to one of those principles, which was reach, and saying rather than identifying twenty accounts that you might want to go after that's defined by the sales function, you now maybe can start to look at one thousand, two thousand organisations that you define in terms of they have the attributes of your of a key account profile. But then you market to them at the top end of the funnel. You build those memory structures that we were talking about earlier. And you trawl the market in the, in the memory sense at the top end of the funnel. And when those organizations start to engage with you, you know the platforms allow you to start to see which um, of these accounts is bubbling to the top and is engaging with our campaigns. They all, that, that's a, a really good indicator of buying signals. And then you take those that have engaged with you into the one to few and then the one to one campaigns lower down the funnel. So I just think that ABM is really maturing uh, and it's starting to look across the entire funnel from reach at the top and brand building activity all the way through to bid support down the bottom. And I mentioned digital out of home earlier, but you know we've run campaigns where we're running digital out of home that targets someone's head office or or the uh, through display targets their head office and it's supporting at the bid stage, so right at the, uh, the the sales level of the the funnel. Uh, and one final question then about the podcast: um, What can we expect from the show in 2022? Just a lot more of the same. I think we're going to have. We're looking forward to welcoming a great list of client side marketers. But I think this year the key thing that we want to be doing as well is um, inviting. Um, some researchers in, so people that are actually thought leaders in the space that are doing some B2B specific research that can bring um, some of that to the table, that'd be really great. 
and yeah, um, potentially uh, start bringing some some creatives um, on board as well and having a bit more of a creative discussion uh, this year and just breaking down what really great creative effectiveness looks like. Exciting times. All it leaves me to say is Richard Parsons, Cosmic Gidis, thanks for a fascinating and fun chat. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Stu. I'm Stuart Black. See you next time on B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper.